Bucks get back to work at Rogers Arena. And boy, a divisional rival makes a major, major splash. It's the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. We are live at Rogers Arena as the Canucks are getting some early special team works special teams work in before the full practice begins. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Of course, you can always read Drance's work covering the Canucks at The Athletic and we will be here as I said live throughout the course of the show to get you all the news, the notes, the updates about what the Canucks are working on, what the lines work le- look like, what the power play formation looks like and it sounds like and it looks like we will Uh, have some updates for you on that front. First, before we go any farther, Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And, Drancer, as we kind of wait and see, you know, how Canucks practice develops, what they're working on, who's skating with who... I think we got to start with the big news around the NHL today, and it has major, major implications for your Vancouver Canucks because Jack Eichel is now officially in the Pacific Division, a member of the Vegas Golden Knights. As if this division needed another extremely high-end center, Vegas now has their man, their number one center, and as I said, this is a divisional rival getting a superstar player. That's a big deal from a Canucks perspective. He's pretty good. He's a pretty good. He's not player. bad. Not yep. bad. Decent when he's healthy. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Jack Eichel is a franchise caliber player, uh, one of the best five-on-four individual performers in the league when he's been healthy. Um, you know, obviously, what he can do five-on-five combination of size and speed and skill that you very rarely see. Like, who's the closest comp to him? Like Malkin, and before that, maybe sure. Lemieux, maybe Sundin. Like, you know, I mean, you're talking about. A very, very limited Lindros. Like, you're talking about a very limited set of players who have been that big, that good, that skilled. And the Vegas Golden Knights got him for Alex Tuck, um, you know, who's great. Like, I love Alex Tuck as a secondary scorer. Really option. nice player. Yeah. yeah. I like Peyton Krebs a lot, too. I think he's a fantastic prospect and a, and a top 10 protected pick. So that, to me, sounds like a, you know, overall... Um, like a late, it's a, it's a late first, right? I yep. mean, if Vegas is going to bottom out, your best chance of getting a decent pick off them is this year and it's yep. top 10 protected. Um, you know, it's not a huge package. Like, frankly, it's not a huge p- a package for a potential franchise player, even though we all know the injury context, right? The injury risk that hangs over the Golden Knights and acquiring Jack Eichel and his big salary and big ticket. It's, it's a... It's a gamble, but hey, if you're going to roll the dice, roll it in Vegas. Like, it's great. I mean, it's a great move. Like, it's a great move. The one thing they didn't have, a franchise-caliber centerman, they now have it. Every single great player that moves seems to end up there. Um, you know, good for them. Like, good for them. Good yeah. for them showing that aggression. Imagine what Seattle could have done if they'd approached the expansion draft with an, a, a dash of creativity. It's uh, it's the one thing that's been missing from that roster since they came into the league, is that legit high-end number one center. And as much as they wanted to talk in the offseason about oh, you know, that, that's more of a problem that you guys see here. We don't really feel that way. We're fine with Chandler Stevenson as our number one center. It was always hard to buy into that and with Jack Eichel <laughs> on the market, not a big surprise that you're, he ends You're talking up... to Chandler Stevenson's biggest <laughs> fan, but watch it. But he's not a number one center. No, no, he's, he's not. not a he's number just, one center. He's just an awesome player. Yeah, but you know, given the reality of, of Vegas's roster, where they stand, how aggressive they've been, you know, to use a horrible, horrible Vegas cliche, pushing their chips to the, mid- to the middle of the table, it's not a big surprise that they 
end up landing Jack Eichel. And just to catch everyone up, he, he will be getting his preferred disc replacement surgery. Estimates on a timeline to get him back on the ice three to five months. The bigger picture, though, is he's signed for four more seasons after this one at $10 million per year. So, again, to bring it back to the Canucks, that is another elite center in the Pacific Division for the foreseeable future. And, of course, you already have Connor McDavid in Edmonton, not to mention Leon Dreisaitl there as well. Now Jack Eichel is going to be skating for the Vegas Golden Knights. And, look, Drancer, obviously talent coming to your division, it impacts the team no matter what. But I, I, I look at this specifically in the context of the divisional playoff format that the NHL is using now. And if the Canucks hope to do anything – of significance in the playoffs, if they hope to, you know, achieve the goal of lifting the Stanley Cup or even go in a deep, deep run in the playoffs, that's likely going to meet, be meeting, uh, mean beating at least one of Edmonton or Vegas at some point in the playoffs. And, you know, from my perspective, we have talked a lot about Elias Pettersson already this year, right, and what he means to this organization, what he means to the future of the Vancouver Canucks, how important it is for him to get to the level of his potential, get to the, the level that we've glimpsed at times in his first few seasons. And this Jack Eichel trade, all it does is put even more pressure on Pedersen to to realize his potential, right? We, we talk a lot about the Canucks, the high-end talent they have, and I think there's just a, now a very clear standard in the division they have to reach, right? Because if you're going to go and beat a team like Vegas in the playoffs, you can't decisively lose the first-line center matchup if you're going to do that. So... To me, the story here from a Canucks perspective is Pedersen has to be that true, defining franchise superstar center now for them to have success in this division. I mean, Vancouver got within seven minutes of beating Vegas, and they didn't win a single matchup aside from the goalie duel. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know, Jamie. Like, maybe you should watch the games, bud. (laughs) Seriously, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're right. Vegas has continued to put space between them and the rest of the Pacific Division. By the way, this is going to be a problem for years to come. Like, they're, the attractiveness of that destination, the low tax rate, the, you know, uh, the suburbs, you live in the sun, the cost of living is nil. Like, their video coaches live in mansions in Vegas. I'm not kidding, right? Like, I'm genuinely serious. Um, it's a huge and durable edge that the Golden Knights are going to have, and a lot of it's facilitated by the way that they approach their expansion draft, by the way they accumulated future assets, and by their willingness to trade them. I mean, Nick Suzuki, Fabian Brandstrom, uh, Peyton Krebs now. Like, they've traded a ton yep. of prospect talent. They've just moved quickly on their prospects. And this, by the way, is another thing. Like, a key part of drafting well, right, isn't just getting Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. It's getting Tyler Madden and then turning him into Tyler Foley and then resigning Tyler Foley. Of course, right. that's a key part here. But, like, it's monetizing. The, the draft should be a pipeline to currency that you can use to upgrade your actual NHL roster, which is why it's not enough to look at a team's draft record and say, that's great. You have to take it that next step forward, f- further and be like, what did they turn that all into, right? And that's sort of where this team has struggled. I mean, when they've missed on picks, those guys have stuck around for five, six years and then end up bringing you in Yuho Lamico and... You know, uh, Noah Juleson as opposed to something of value or nothing in the case of Jake Vertanen or, you know, and on and on down the list. It's Jonah Gajevich, Cole Lind. Like, at some point, you got to trade guys. You can't fall victim to the endowment effect. You can't fall in love with your guys. If they have value, cash them in. That's been the Vegas approach. That's been the Tampa Bay approach. It's worked really well. I, I just applaud overall, like, the stones on McPhee and McCrimmon 
to keep going all in like this, to keep winning the derbies for the big pieces available. Um, you know, Pietrangelo, Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty. I mean, it's really, it's really quite remarkable. And, and, you know, again, I can't get over the contrast with Seattle. Like, yeah. who was better positioned to roll the dice on Jack Eichel this season than the team that entered the league with $81.5 million in cap space, you know, and a ton of opportunity to get whatever players the, the Sabres wanted, not to mention if they'd actually gotten any picks. Yep. In the way that they approached it, other than like a second for Vitaly Vanacek and a fourth for Tyler Pitlick, I mean, they should have been able to build the type of war chest that allowed them to win these types of deals. They should have been able to launch with Jack Eichel, yes, injured in several months away, but nonetheless, that's how they should have approached this. Vegas did that. It's still paying off for them. That's why they're the class of the Pacific, even though this deal, and another thing about it, right, sort of does punt a little bit on this season. Like right. This, this yep. does not help them. In the short term, as they're without like every top six forward that they have, um, Vegas might struggle to make the playoffs this year. And yet, this team that's been the class of the West for so long still has their eye trained clearly on the big prize down the line. I applaud that because it's in stark contrast, frankly, to what we've seen so often here. And it's a good point about the aggressiveness and the creativity that they attacked their expansion draft with still paying dividends for them, right? The reason they've been able to continually move valuable picks and valuable prospects for big-name star players is because they did such a good job of loading up on all of those things in the expansion draft. And I think it's a it's a... A good point to keep in mind about trading prospects, right? Like Peyton Krebs, you talk to any prospect analyst, prospect expert, and they'll all rave about him and what a great prospect he is. Mm -hmm. And that's fair. And he could go on to have an extremely successful all-star caliber NHL career. There's also a world that exists in which Peyton Krebs' value is never higher than it is right now, right? That's You also have to acknowledge that reality. And I think Vegas has done a good job of just being able to take kind of an honest look at the the reality of prospect development in the NHL. And you can love all of your prospects and you can think the world of them, but you also have to realize not every single one of them is going to reach their full potential. And sometimes you do have to strike while the iron is hot. And as you talk about, and by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. We want to hear from you. What is your impression of the Eichel trade? How do you think it impacts the Canucks going forward? And as you talked about, this is this fits a pattern with the Vegas Golden Knights franchise. And, you know, I talked a little bit from a Canucks perspective about how this increases the pressure on Elias Patterson to get to a certain level in his career because of the competition in the division now. But I also think that, you know, specifically because they are a divisional rival, but really every team in the NHL should be looking at this and saying, how can we aggressively go out and raise the talent level on our roster, right? And I think the Canucks should be at the top of the list who are thinking that. And we have seen, you know, bold moves from this management group recently, right? Obviously, the Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland trade, that was a big, big splash, a very complex deal. But I think the lesson for the Canucks, you know, you can't just look at this. If you're in the Canucks organization, you can't just look at this move and say, you know, boy, I really hope Elias Pettersson reaches his potential. You have to be strategizing, okay, maybe it's not going out and trading for Jack Eichel because that's such a rare opportunity. But what are the other big bold, aggressive moves that we can do to increase the talent level on our roster. Because, again, as much as it's about, you know, Elias Pettersson matching up with Jack Eichel, it's also clear that this team still needs more of an infusion of talent. And I think just the overall lesson from Vegas is 
the aggressiveness and the mindset to always be figuring out, okay, how can we find that next piece? How can we find that next key player for the team? And I think that is that's the other important takeaway from a Canucks perspective here. Yeah, you know what? It's a really good point. The other thing to remember, right, is like in the context of Pedersen and Hughes struggling at the moment, right? Like not struggling. Hughes certainly hasn't sure. struggled like Pedersen has. But, you know, it's been a slow start for Pedersen Besser for sure. And the Quinn Hughes pair with Tucker Pullman hasn't quite been at the level of Hughes Tanev in the past or even Hughes, um, you know, with. Uh, Hamannick last season, at least in stretches. So, you know, one thing to keep in mind is there have been a lot of players that have come in and had a lot of hype. Now, what Hughes and Pedersen have done for this team, in for Pedersen's case over the past, course, three years, 165 games, and in Hughes's case over the course of two, uh, but especially in his rookie season, is remarkable. Like, like fringe historic, right? (laughs) But, but... There's a lot of examples around the league of teams that have been rebuilding and have finally got, like, their pieces, and then it turns out it's Nazem Kadri and Morgan Riley, and it's, right. like, a, a, a high-end second-line center and a really good top-pair defenseman, but not the next Scott Niedermeyer, right? Or, you know, think about what Ryan Nugent Hopkins is in Edmonton, right? Like, there was a time not too long ago that 18-year-old Ryan Nugent Hopkins was, like, a big thing that Canucks fans cringed about when he scored a hat trick on them in that one <laughs> early season game, right? Like, yep. you know, and, and it turns out that Ryan Nugent Hopkins is a very, very good fringe top line caliber player, right? He's like the fourth best forward on that Edmonton Oilers team. And with him slotted there, they are a juggernaut, yep. right? Um, there is a world where that happens. Like the attrition rate on prospects and on young NHL players is so high. Um, and the bar that you have to leap over like, the bar that a player has to leap over to go from being what, you know, uh, a Nazem Kadri is to being a Martin St. Louis, right? Or, like, right. you know, so that step up is really rare. Like, there's a reason there's only – there's a reason the best guys in the league, there's only, like, ten of them, right? Like, there's the reason that the super-duper stars are who they are and that the stars are who they are. And, and sometimes it's work rate. Sometimes it's just natural, raw, God-given ability what have you, but it's just a really, really tough step to take. And, yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to see the step that Pedersen and Hughes take together over over the years to come because they th- this team needs them to find that type of dynamic that the Twins had where they, like, push each other and maximize what each other is as a player, right? That, like, internal competitive dynamic because that's what turns a team like Edmonton into what they were a year ago into what they are now where you've got – Every single guy, you've got, um, you know, Darnell Nurse and Zach Cassian and Jesse Pugliarvi becoming 140% of what they were previously because of the environment that they've created, those two star players specifically. And you compare that with, like, Toronto and Marner and Matthews and how that hasn't happened for that group, right? Yeah. Like, all of these little intangible qualities. Like, when we talk about intangibles, I feel like we're always talking about, like, you know, this moment of grit, but it's like, those are the ones. It's the it's the team environment ones that really seem to make a difference durably over the course of seasons or multiple seasons. Um, you know, that's kind of the level that this Canucks core needs to get to if they're going to accomplish special things. And there's always, and this happens, I think this, ha- this certainly happens with fans, right, and media to a certain extent. I think it happens within organizations as well, where you acquire a bunch of good young players, and then in your head you're just kind of like, oh, and then they'll develop over the course of three to four years, and they'll all get way better, and then we'll be a really good team, right? And you see this, you know, when fans are projecting 
lineups for three years down the road, and the, the bottom six is all is like the teams, you know, <laughs> five, five through yeah, ten yeah, best yeah. prospects, right? Totally. And it's like it just doesn't work like that. You can, yeah, you get a nice group of prospects, and and that's awesome, and you want to nurture it and build with those players, but you also you just you can never stop looking for creative ways to add talent. And I think again, that's one of the big takeaways here for the Vancouver Canucks on the Jack Eichel deal. Uh, this one, this text comes in. Uh, Elias Pettersson is going to see Eichel as his rival and will elevate himself through anger and confidence. Unsigned text. Excuse me, that's Michael texting in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. And that, you know, that, that's that's a fine thing to hope for. And as you said, Drancer, there is an element of intangibles when players are taking these, this next step, right, where you do need to find that edge that drives you and convinces you to get better uh, wherever you can. The other interesting discussion point in the Eichel trade for Canucks perspective is so the news started breaking kind of yesterday afternoon I believe it was Kevin Weeks who reported a potential package on the table from Calgary that involved Matthew Kachuk and a a boatload of of prospects and picks and now the reporting is you know what that deal was never really on the table but at one point last night it looked like the deal Buffalo was going to get for Jack Eichel was going to be significantly more enticing I think than what actually went down and and, Drancer, you and I were talking, okay, Vancouver we don't think was ever really seriously in on any level on the Jack Eichel discussions, but you look at what – They were not, by the way. What I know Buffalo, that for sure. Yeah, you look at what Buffalo eventually got, okay, and it's Tuck, it's Krebs, a protected first-round pick, and then a conditional second-round pick as well. So, okay, what would that – what would the equivalent package from Vancouver look like? Besser, Pod Colson, a protected first, and the second with another third coming back. That, that seems pretty, like a pretty it. reasonable comparison to me, right? Yep. And you could maybe, you know, you could argue maybe Besser a little more value than Tuck, but Krebs more valuable than Pod Colson, so maybe that evens up. But, but you're but, something but, in the neighborhood. But um, because of the contract term exactly. on Tuck, I actually don't know that that's yeah. the case, right? So, like, Besser might be better than Tuck, but is he more valuable as a trade chip than a guy who signed for four more years at five-ish? As opposed to a guy who's, as opposed an, to a guy who's an RFA with a $7.5 million qualifying offer one year away from UFA, right? So you're, I mean, you're in the neighborhood, at least, with a package like that, right? So I guess the question for the, for the listeners, 650-650, get your thoughts in, is if, would you have done an equivalent package that the, the Buffalo Sabres ultimately moved Jack Eichel for. And again, we're, our, what we're working with is Brock Besser, Vasily Colson, a top 10 protected first round pick, a second round pick, and then a conditional third round pick coming back along with Eichel. Is that a deal you would have made? And I think when you put it in those terms, Drancer, I think the answer from a lot of people is going to be yes. If that's what it requires to, if that's what it requires to go out and get Jack Eichel, that's a pretty reasonable deal to make. Yeah, but are you willing? to not be all in to make the playoffs this year. Like, this organization has yep. shown in every action they've made that, no, they want to make the playoffs this year. And that's also why we need to raise the bar in terms of evaluating this team's level of play, right? Like, you know, you come out of that third period, and it's the first time that this team really has felt like they showed that type of competitive passion you need on an every night basis. And it was so fun to watch and it was so scintillating from an entertainment value perspective. But also to me, as I've zoomed out from it over the past 24 hours, I wonder like, don't we need to hold this team a little bit to the standard that it's like, Hey, can you do that for 24 or for 60 minutes? Like, can you try that hard for 60 minutes? Can you bring that emotion, that level of care, that level of uh, competitive fire to a game for 60 whole minutes, like, at some point? Because we haven't even seen 
anything close to that. And for a team that's all in, for a team that's not sniffing around Jack Eichel-type deals, for a team that seems to be trying to add to its core with guys like Garland and OEL as opposed to franchise-type players, right? Like a team that's willing to push future cap flexibility and top 10 picks and first round picks and other picks into the center of the table for this group like this group needs to be worth it man like this needs this group needs to show us that they understand what this organization has put into this don't they like on some level this team is all in on this group and this group finally on tuesday showed us something meaningful like something where you could sort of buy into there being something beyond the you know, talent as it looks on paper. Uh, sustain that. Like, sustain that. That has to be the standard here. That's certainly, that's the next step that has to happen, obviously, is that, okay, you found something that was working in that game against the Rangers, and now what you need to do is you need to find a way to continue it, and as you say, to sustain it. And their next opportunity, and we'll get into this matchup more specifically on the show tomorrow, but their next opportunity is tomorrow night against the Nashville Predators, again, at home. And, you know, I, I kind of look at the, the Nashville matchup, not that their rosters are, are similar necessarily, but look, with the Rangers, as we talked about it, okay, off to a good start, but not, not necessarily a team that really frightens you if they're 5-on-5 five five played. I think you could say a, a very similar thing about Nashville, right? Like, it's, it, I don't want to say this is the Arizona <laughs> Coyotes coming to town and you're, you know, you're licking your chops for a chance to play them, but... That's a very winnable game, right? That is a that's another opportunity for the Canucks to go out and get two points on home ice. And as you said, it's for all of the the talk about okay, how are they going to generate scoring chances, and what should the line combinations be? Who should the personnel on the top power play unit be? All of that stuff matters. All of that stuff is important. But you're right; at a certain point, it also comes down to bring that energy, bring that execution, bring that passion for a full 60 minutes, bring it to start the game, right? That's what I would like to see more than anything else because the, it, the rarely have we seen so far this year that the Canucks get off to a great start and then wane throughout the rest of the game. We've seen that a little bit. I can, Seattle was an example that jumps to mind where they played very well in the first period, then took a long time off throughout the rest of the game. But so often it has been slow start and then trying to play their way back into the game. And for me, more than anything else – Come out with some jump. Come out, and rather than the life getting sucked out of Rogers Arena, take some of the life from the visiting team, right? Make this building loud right away, right from the opening whistle. This building could be a fortress, right? Like, it really can. It used to be. Yep. It used to be. It's just, yeah, I mean, for sure. The the starts, the it's just the consistency. Like, it's just the consistency. And sometimes inconsistency is actually just lack of quality. <laughs> you know, and people yep. sort of point to the consistency, but it's like, it's hard. Like, you're not always going to win every battle. You're always, like, a play of playing a full 60 minutes doesn't mean you're not going to give up some great A scoring chances or spend some time in your own zone. Like, no, this of course. is the NHL, right? So You're not going to play a perfect game. You're never going to no. play a perfect game. Not, not in hockey. So, you know, but, but it's more about just, I mean, it wasn't perfect when Tyler Myers turned over the puck and then they spent a minute defending. But there was just this level of intensity, competitive intensity, um, in the wake of, you know, the two goals, the comeback, the way the crowd was back into it. You know, they were, they were, I mean, that wasn't perfect, but it was the type of passion I'm talking about. I just want to see that with some level of consistency as opposed to a bunch of guys who, you know, perform at a, a level that sort of makes me wonder how committed they are. 
I'd still like to see them play with a lead too, right? Like get <laughs> get the lead early, put the wind at your backs a little bit, right? Like give give yourself some sort of advantage rather than Would constantly nice. digging these holes that you have to find a way to get out of. You said something earlier though about the Predators, Stars, Ducks coming in. Like those are all winnable games. Yes, and and they need like I do they need five points? Do they yes. need five points from this next three? Because that that even that gives you a three three and one homestand over seven, which kind of is not good. Like, that's not even good. It's not good. It's not good. It's a salvage job, It though. doesn't kill you. It doesn't kill you. It's that's a salvage job, right? Yeah. And so the Canucks are already at the point where you can't have a good homestand. But no. you can salvage some things. And, and look, that matters. Like, anyone who's played Scopa or Cribbage knows that, like, you're going to lose some hands. Sometimes yep. the, the job is limiting the damage. Well, they're going to limit the damage of this homestand. They probably need to not lose again in 60 minutes over the course of this homestand. The Predators are so, are not very good. Like... Almost, it's hard to find a more directionless franchise in the entire league than the Predators. The Stars, I actually like a lot of what the Stars do, but they are a lock-it-down defensive team. Yeah. If you score a couple goals, they are going to have a really tough time. Like, if there's one game to have a good start, it's that game on Sunday night. And then the Ducks, I mean, you have to beat the Ducks. If you're the Canucks in this division, you just absolutely have to beat the Ducks. And and look, the Ducks are playing pretty well. They have a pretty lethal power play. Zegris... Um, you know, under the watchful eye of Newell Brown, <laughs> um, they're they're firing twenty six plus percent. Don't, don't you just think they're going to come in here and go like four for five on the power play or well, something they're, with, they're new, with Newell a, Brown? They're doing that to a lot of teams. You know, <laughs> the the performance of the Newell Brown coached Anaheim Ducks power play oh, should give a funny. lot of the texters who who get at us about Green having lost the room some pause about their ability to evaluate coaching. Truly, so yeah, I mean, you need to win that game. Like, you need to win that game. And so, look, they need to do well here. They need to do well, and, the, and they need to bring it. Um, they need that power play to click. They need their top six to look as dynamic as they did in the latter 40 minutes against the Rangers, at least at 5-on-5. Five five. And they need Demko to keep being Demko, which at this point is the one part of this team that I think everyone's feeling pretty confident about. Yeah, that's uh, Demko. We're doing approval ratings, like politicians track <laughs> yeah. their approval ratings. Demko's have never wavered so far in this market, at least not this season or any time recently. Uh, the Canucks, they're working on the power play. They're, they've got their line combinations out at practice here at Rogers Arena. We will tell you all about what we're seeing and continue talking, looking forward to the rest of this homestand, what the Canucks need to do to earn some more points against the teams coming into town. All of that coming up next. It's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. We are live at Rogers Arena. The Canucks in the midst of practice here. They're getting set to face the National Predators tomorrow at Rogers Arena. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.com. And, Drancer, there's some interesting wrinkles happening for the Canucks on the power play specifically, Mm. both in terms of personnel and, I would argue, a little bit in terms of tactics as well. We'll tell you all about those in just a second, but I do want to get to some of the text coming in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line because we kind of floated the question out there, okay, now that Jack Eichel has been dealt, we see the package that Buffalo got back for him, trying to assemble a roughly a roughly equivalent package that the Canucks could have offered, and what we landed on was Besser, Pod Colson, and then the same conditional picks that Vegas gave up. Would you, as a Canucks fan, 
make that deal. And we have a lot of reactions coming in either way, right? The very first one that came in was simply unsigned, no effing way. Uh, but then shortly after that, Rocket and Langley says, yes, Vancouver, we definitely do the trade you mentioned. Another unsigned text says, uh, Besser and Podkolzin are way better than the comparables of Tuck and Krebs. Come on, guys. I disagree with that. That's incorrect. Specifically on the Krebs-Podkolzin comparison. Well, I mean, again, the Besser thing I explained, it's not yep. necessarily about quality of players so much as it's Contract asset status. value, right? Yep. And and as an asset, Tuck might actually be more valuable, even if Besser is the superior player. And and on the Krebs-Podkolzin one, I, I think if a month ago, if the Canucks had called Vegas and said, will you do a one-for-one Podkolzin for Krebs, Vegas would have said no and hung up on them. That, that's my impression. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, they have his former linemate, though. You know, they might have, like, Fair found enough. that appealing. Like, they've got Dodonov. Yep. You throw in those two together. Um, I mean, that's a pretty interesting group of young players, and they'll get him next season. At any rate, it's close, right? So Yeah, it's close. Y- y- they're, they're in the ball. Not a lot of breathing room, yeah. Uh, this one comes in, Alex and Coquitlam. I wouldn't move that hall as the Canucks in a million years. Eichel is overrated. I wouldn't want him as a leader on my team. Uh, Catton or Catan, I'm not sure, in Strathcona. Apologies if I'm getting that wrong. Says, absolutely, we should have made that deal for Eichel. If our team in its current form falters, we will be back in the dark for another decade. Lose even more young fans to more entertaining teams. Uh, Jacko says, yes, on the deal. Unfortunately, the Knucks won't go far in the playoffs this year anyway. And I did want to end on this one from Shiloh, who says, no, we have a lot of uncertainty already. We don't need to add to it, and we can't weaken this team from what it is now. And I think that kind of gets at the crux of the matter from a Canucks perspective, totally. right? Is that yeah. you've already made a bunch of big moves. You've moved first-round picks. As Shiloh says, there's a lot of uncertainty. And you're already on the fringe of the playoff discussion, right? So you're you're removing key players from your lineup. You're not getting Eichel for months. Given where this franchise is at, h- how much we know they value making the playoffs this year, I think Shiloh hits the nail on the head. Those are realistically the reasons the Canucks were never involved in the Jack Eichel discussion. Yeah, but, they're all in on this group. Yeah. Like, they're all in on this group. It's, it's as simple as that. All right, so even coming off that, Sorry, I'm just pointing out Besser in the bumper spot to Jamie because we had some disagreement. The Canucks took the ice 20 minutes before practice. 16 players, which was the power play personnel for both units plus some penalty killers to help them as they worked on breakouts primarily and then siphoned into in-zone play. So we've got a shake-up on both units. Yeah. And... Basically, uh, we'll, we'll give it to you like this. From the net out, we've got on PP1, JT Miller now moved to the net front as Canucks Nation raises its hands in Breakfast Club-style celebration. <laughs> we've got Connor Garland on his one-timer side at the left circle, Brock Besser in at the bumper, Elias Pettersson on his one-timer side at the right circle, and then Oliver Ekman-Larsen and not Quinn Hughes up top. Now... In the course of doing breakouts and then transitioning into in-zone play, it wasn't immediately clear whether or not Pedersen or Besser was in the bumper or at the right circle. And this should be news uh, or music to Canucks fans' ears, too. The reason it wasn't clear is that the Canucks were working on a switch scheme in the breakout that actually made it pretty apparent. There's fakes, there's a variety of different motions in place, designed to confuse and create shot opportunities for one or both of them. So, looks like anyway, there are there's some practice to try and get a less static look out of PP1 
in addition to the fact that it looks to me like they're trying to graft some of the chemistry up top that Garland and OEL clearly had against the Rangers onto a power play unit that also features Elias Pettersson's bomb and JT Miller's work at the net front and ability to win draws. And and so cascading impact from that is, is Bo Horvat moves out of the bumper spot for the first time in a long time. Ever? Yep. Like, I can't yep. remember the last time I saw Bo Horvat on the power play, not at the bumper spot. He is now on PP2, which from the net out, Alex Chason, of course. Yes. <laughs> the, the one immutable. Um, followed by Niels Hoaglander on his one-timer side at the right circle. Tanner Pearson at the bumper. Bo Horvat on his, uh, sorry, uh, downhill side on the left circle. Niels yep. Hoaglander's on his one-timer side. And then Quinn Hughes up top. So that's PP2. Gives them two face-off winners, too, right? Like, now you can put PP2 out just to try and set up a Quinn Hughes point shot off of a Bo Horvat face-off win. You know, even just to give your power play one, like, a little bit of rest and get a scoring chance. So, um, interesting tweaks. And looks like from the breakout work, first of all, that breakouts are a big point of emphasis. And two, that the club is trying to find ways to rotate a little bit more around the zone. And that's a good point about the face-off winner on, on power play, too, as well. That had been a problem. They hadn't had a totally. natural center on that unit, so you didn't really feel like you could put them out for an actual draw. You had to get them out you know, live through the course of play. Power play one, that's where I want to focus. Obviously, that is the key unit to get going. And we, we've had a lot of fans and listeners pointing out you know, over the last few weeks, like, hey, let's stop, let's stop worrying about two balanced units and just get one unit working. And I tend to agree with that philosophy. So the really interesting thing to me about that mix of players. And again, it's JT Miller, Brock Besser, Connor Garland, Elias Pettersson, and Oliver Ekman Larson skating on power play one is the interesting thing to me is the flexibility, right? And that's even, you know, beyond the the ability to switch and the ability to fake and, and move different places that we've seen here at practice. But you just look at, okay, now all of a sudden you have, instead of just the one right-handed shot and Alex Chason, you go to the two right-handed shots with Brock Besser and Connor Garland. And with Alex Chason, there's only one place he can be on a power play, and that's right in front of the net. And if Alex Chason is anywhere else on your power play, that's a problem and something has gone wrong, right? With the group they've got out there, the forwards they have out there now on power play one, those are guys that can move around, right? Brock Besser is playing in the bumper spot. But if he switches place with Connor Garland and gets to his one-timer, you feel pretty good about that. JT Miller's in front of the net. If he moves to the wing where we've seen him play and have success on his downhill side. Okay, and Brock Besser slides down to play in front of the net. You feel pretty good about that as well. There might be opportunities for Elias Patterson to slide into the bumper spot at moments. Just by virtue of changing the personnel, before you even get into any of the tactical considerations, I think by removing Alex Chason and getting more highly skilled, more more flexible, more versatile players in Garland and Besser on that unit, I think you've opened up a ton of different possibilities and, and the ability to be creative, be more fluid, be more dynamic on that top unit. For sure. I think the... I mean, the top unit, just need they just need to get going. Like, it was yep. such a bad performance against the Rangers. And, look, I think Jason King's a really bright guy. I think he's a hard-working guy. I think they're going to figure out some solutions. I think we saw some interesting things unveiled tonight, right, or today. Uh, you know, JT Miller at the net front. Yep. This this power play was screaming for that. Like, screaming for that. That needed to happen. Power play two now has, you know, Pearson and Chase on, on it. One of them in the bumper. One of them down at the net front. 
only a matter of time, right, before Vasily Podkolzin gets put into one of those spots. Like, you know, we've seen him shoot. You know, seems like that shot would play yep. from the bumper. Personally, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's an area that I'd, I'd strongly consider getting him some, some early reps in. So they need to be better. There's other options. Um, I still think there's changes, like common sense changes that need to get made here. But a uh, step in the right direction. And, and really watching those breakouts, watching some of that rotation, I thought there were some pretty interesting things being shown um, by this team overall. And again, as you said, just the the getting away from the static nature of it, right? And that's that's something that everyone who's watched this team, and I'm sure the people involved, the principals involved, have been trying to do as well. And, and I do think, again, just from first blush, seeing it at practice here, thinking about it on paper, in theory, how it could work, that new unit on the first power play does have the potential to to really get away from being so static and so stationary. The other interesting thing there that we should touch on is that it's OEL on the point rather than Quinn Hughes with that group. And I still believe ultimately Quinn Hughes is going to be the key power power play quarterback on the first unit for this team. His skill set just – we know he can do it. His skill set is perfect for it. Ultimately, it's going to be him. But I also think, to be fair, Oliver Ekman Larson has looked extremely comfortable and extremely effective when he's had his power play minutes so far. It hasn't translated into production. No one has been producing on the power play. But I think Oliver Ekman Larson has at least earned a chance to show what he can do with this top unit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see no reason for Oliver Ekman Larson to ever play power play ahead of Quinn Hughes, as effective as he's been there in his career, uh, except for one, which is that, you know, there seems to be a pretty decent understanding between Ekman Larson and Connor Garland up high. So if you want to integrate Connor Garland yep. into your PP1 mix, being able to put him with a guy who he's played power play minutes with for a long time, like throughout his NHL career, right? And and who demonstrably, they have an understanding of where to go, how to sort of create some space between one another. Um, you know, I think that makes sense. Like, I think that makes sense as a... Um, like a gateway, he's a gateway defenseman for for getting Connor Garland onto PP one. In that context, I'm okay with it. But if we see a long stretch in which Quinn Hughes isn't playing PP one, I think that's well, that's just it. Eventually, it's Quinn Hughes's role, right? Eventually, it's Quinn. It, has well, to be it Quinn is Hughes's right now. Role. I mean, not, not even like eventually makes me think you're you're being like, well, he's 21 down the no, line. No, no, it's no, like, no, 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 no. Like, eventually this season, like, it's next, Quinn Hughes's like this, role. Eventually this week, yes. <laughs> At the end of the day. Quinn Hughes was born to play power play at the NHL level. Um, Leave him there. And uh, I like that you you picked up on the Arizona connection with Garland and and OEL, both on the first power play unit. Dan texts in, so what creative name are we giving the first unit? The Arizona Lotto Squad? Coyote 649? I don't know. Let's see if it plays. The the Arizona State Lottery? (laughs) Something like that? I was thinking if they don't play well, they're Coyote Ugly. There you go. There you go. We'll see if they can get that power play going. Uh, elsewhere in Canucks practice, we'll, we'll give you the line combinations. No change from how they ended the game against the New York Rangers. So you still have Horvat with Pearson and Hoaglander, Pedersen, Miller, and Connor Garland. And, of course, that line was very effective once they got put together against the Rangers. That bumps Brock Besser down to skate with Pod Colson and Jason Dickinson. And then Bailey, Lamico, and Chason are your fourth line. The defense pairings, also no change in that. I don't want to say shocking because they won the game, and you know there's always a certain amount of uh, conservatism from NHL coaches when they win. They're, they're reluctant to change the lineup often, but it is OEL and Myers, Hughes and Poolman, 
Shen and Hamannick still together on that third pairing. And Drancer, we talked about the struggles of that Shen and Hamannick pairing yesterday. Is this just... It's an off day. It's not game day, so we're going to leave everything together. No, we're going to see them again. We're going to see them together again, I think. Oh, yeah. Woof. Can't say I'm looking forward to that. Well, I mean, of course you're not. You're not a member of the Nashville Predators. (laughs) Uh, Johnny Mac texted. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm a little mean. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I like Garland going with Pitt Patterson, I think that had to happen, right, after the way that they performed against yes, the Rangers. 100%. Uh, you know, we've talked so much in this market about Elias Pettersson. Yep. We haven't talked that much about Brock Besser. Yep. Right? His season has sort of fallen within the context of the lot of line struggles mm-hmm. and Pettersson struggles. But, you know, I, wa- I do wonder, considering the time he missed, considering how unpredictable his return is, right? Like, we were waiting for it. Yep. Timelines kind of changed. Started as a maintenance day. The fact pattern all suggests started as a maintenance day. It did. I know. I, I mean, for sure. But, like, you know, so did World War One. Like, <laughs> Archduke Ferdinand was out with a maintenance day. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the fact is, is that, um, you know, when you look at the fact pattern, right, it does suggest that there was something that was nagging. Yep. It had to be managed. And, you know, when you look at how he's performed out the gate, I, I mean, I do sort of wonder if that's still something he's managing at this point. Um, you know, so seeing him drop down to the third line, you know, Brock Besser has played on third lines in the past. And, you know, with guys like Adam Gaudet, guys who required a little bit more of the puck. Yep. And I don't know that I loved that fit. But put him with two lefties guys who don't need the puck in Dickinson and Pod Colson. And I think if he's healthy and, and, you know, full speed Besser, that, you know, he can help that line and help that line control play. So it's a, it's an interesting mix, but I, I do wonder a little bit about where Besser is at. It's a very fair concern, and you're right, that Brock Besser's struggles have, have been under-discussed because so much attention has been, understandably so, put on Elias Patterson, and we all understand, you know, where they are in the pecking order and the hierarchy of this team. It's natural to focus more on Elias Patterson, but with Besser, it's easy to forget because last season was such a disaster for this team, but Brock Besser was really good. Brock Besser was a really effective forward for the Vancouver Canucks last year, and I think it was fair to expect him to come in at something close to that level, at least, and, and provide similar value, and we just haven't seen it. And I will say... It's heartening a little bit to see him on the first power play unit because as the game ended against the Rangers, he was not only on the third line, but he'd also been demoted to the second power play unit, right? So he was falling down the lineup in multiple different ways. And now still on the third line, but he's going to get his chances to to get some confidence and get some offensive opportunities on the power play. I, I don't... Look, the Canucks, until... And unless Travis Green decides to move Tanner Pearson from Bo Horvat's wing, there's going to be a talented player playing in the, on the third line, right? That That's how it shapes up, right? Whether it's Niels Hoaglander or Connor Garland or now Brock Besser. So every time that happens, we can't kind of freak out about, oh my goodness, this player's been demoted to the third line. And I do think that unit has some potential to have success, but it's also fair to look at it and say, you know, as much as we talk about Elias Pettersson needing to get going, this team needs a, a you know a, a high-level version of Brock Besser as well that we just haven't seen. Up to this point. Yeah. He was their best forward a year ago, right? No, and, d- no doubt about it. Uh, but, you know, I'm just thinking about, like, when Besser is on, right, it, people people always pay attention to the shot. They always will. Because, you know, 
He's got the the flow shot. He's got that flow swag in terms of that ability, that rare ability to beat set goaltenders with a wrist shot. Yep. And it is a super rare ability. But but when Besser is really on, he's winning a ton of battles along the yes. wall, right? His playmaking has improved enormously to to the point where I think he is, you know, top 15 playmaking winger in the NHL, maybe maybe at the fringes of the top 10, like he's exceptionally talented as a playmaking winger. I mean, I look, he's not Marner, he's not Huberto, but no. he's... No, Panarin, know, no. Yeah, no, he's not at that tier, but, like, you know, the next tier or two down, you'll find Besser. Uh, I like that fit if he's if he's completely ready uh, and completely healthy. I just, you know, as I'm thinking about the moments where I've watched Besser play right. and trying to sort of pick up the moments that I saw so often last season where I was like, wow, like, look at the growth of his two-way game. Look at his intelligence and assertiveness and his physical assertiveness um, showing through, shining through here. I, I, I'm kind of at a loss to think of too many of those moments. Yeah, and it's a good point about his ability to win those board battles, right? He, that's that's what was impressive about his season last yeah, he year. Looked like, right? He looked like righty Chris Higgins with a better shot. It he was looked great. like a complete player, a complete top yep. six impact forward, right? And again, we're still waiting uh, for that version of Brock Besser to emerge this year. Uh, Bo from Burnaby texts in, it wasn't Elias Pettersson and Garland that worked. It was Miller and Garland. Elias was a passenger. Strong disagree. Except Strong for the one disagree. play in three overtime. I disagree as except well. For, except for the shot that he rang off the crossbar yeah. with Miller, except for the fact that the uh, the Miller goal. The, the east-west play yes. was set up by his deke, his move high, and, and his, his nice pass to Garland. His feathered high-low pass. Like, yeah. come on. So, look, I get it. Miller potted both goals. Garland had two primary assists. I understand why you're, you know, you could focus on that. But I don't. there were, <laughs> look, I'm just a more understanding, tolerant yeah, guy clearly, than you, answer. Clearly. Uh, no, I, I, look, I, I, try to see, I try to see things from, from other people's perspective. I, I don't. Uh, but but <laughs> no, I don't. I'm just stubborn. No, no, no. But ultimately, it's not fair to say that Elias Pettersson was a passenger on that line. And, and, hey, no one's sitting here and saying, oh, Elias Pettersson, he solved it. He's back. He's no. back. No, we're not saying that. We're just saying it was a step in the right direction. Within the context of Elias Pettersson's first 165 games uh, in this league, right? Like, Tuesday's performance registers is like, he was fine. Yeah, it was (laughs) one of his more anonymous performances. Yeah, not not his most memorable, but in the context of the season, it's like, he was playing with pace. He was, you know, and it's all true. I mean, he did play well. More than anything, the Canucks' top six generated again, right? And as we look forward, as we look to Nashville, Dallas, Anaheim, right? What three ingredients do the Canucks need? They're the same ones we all knew about. Yep. Dynamic top six. Finally, it showed up against the Rangers. If that can be sustained, that's a huge deal. Like That's a non-negotiable for this team if they want to make the playoffs. Yep. The special teams didn't really show up against the Rangers. That should have been a clear Canucks victory with, the, with just a power play that's like average. right? Just like an average power play. It's a clear Canucks victory in regulation. Goaltending. And the goaltending part of it, at least, we know it's what they solid. can do. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing is, right, is Vancouver's goaltending's probably been at a level that's not reasonable to expect it to maintain and sustain long haul, which means the other two have to get going because at some point Vancouver's not – Vancouver's goaltending tandem, but obviously Demko in particular, are not going to stop 95% of shots they face at 5-on-5. Five five. Like, at some point that is going to come back to earth a little bit, succumb to the forces of gravity – in the best league in the world, and, and, and they need the other things firing for when it does. And obviously, a big part of their, you know, they've had they recently in these recent games, they actually have a very good track record of limiting five on five offense. A big part of that is goaltending, but I do think, especially in that game against New York, 
the Rangers did not generate very much at all five on five, right? And look, we we were poking holes in the Rangers resume before the game, but you also have to give credit to the Canucks. And I look at this next stretch of games, right, with Nashville, Dallas, and Anaheim coming to town. None of those are five-on-five offensive juggernauts, right? You've talked about the effectiveness of Anaheim on the power play, but I don't look at any of those teams as groups that are going to come in and blow the doors off of you five-on-five. So I think that's an opportunity for the Canucks to continue building on that, right? Okay, show that they are a team that can really put the clamps down and limit what the other team does on five-on-five. At least in these next this next stretch of games, they have the chance to do that. We're a little pressed for time here, but I did want to get... <laughs> I mentioned that as long as Tanner Pearson is playing with Bo Horvat, there's going to be somebody good, somebody talented playing on the third line, at least. And I knew we would get this, and immediately we got a flood of tech saying, you know, this one unsigned. Why is it never an option to move Pearson? Jordan from Saskatoon. Why the blank is Pearson still in the top six? Reg texts in. For the love of God, why can't why can't Pearson and Horvat play separately? It's a text we get all the time, a question we get all the time. And at a certain level, it just comes down to they've had success together and they're familiar together. Is that is that the extent of it? Is that the long and short of it, Drancer? Why they're, they're joined at the hip together? Yeah, I mean, I think they're joined at the hip together because at the end of the day... Um, Tanner Pearson has a lot of trust in terms of handling the defensive side of the game. That line plays the tough matchups. And so they, you know, go out together a fair bit. I mean, I don't think there's anything you can look at, to be totally honest with you, that suggests that Tanner Pearson hasn't been one of Vancouver's best forwards, frankly. Like, you know, probably not at Connor Garland level. I'm sorry, definitely, definitely not, not at, at Connor, Connor Garland level. I'll, I'll answer that one right but, there. But, like, next up is JT Miller or Tanner Pearson. Frankly, like, and JT Miller drives everyone nuts, so it's, but it's actually JT Miller, right? Like, it is actually JT Miller, and yeah. then after that, it's one of Pearson or Bo, and frankly, it's Pearson and Bo together, but, you know, I know the production's not great or anything, but I mean, we're looking at three even strength points over five games, that's, you know, what, the same as Pedersen? Yep. yep. <laughs> and in terms of who's going to the net, in terms of who's getting chances in the dirty areas of the ice, who else on this team is getting them more often than Pearson? He's the only guy doing it. Yep. So, look, I get that he's not the sexiest name to, to see in Brendan Batchelor's line rushes tweet. Like, I get it. But in terms of actual effectiveness, so far this season, like, you cannot make the argument to me that Tanner Pearson doesn't belong in the top six, especially because after his dynamic start, you know, like, we haven't seen or heard from Niels Hoaglander yep. on this homestand, right? Yep. I mean, Tanner Pearson's Tanner Pearson's probably the third most effective forward on this team right now, maybe fourth, depending on how much credit you want to give Bo Horvat. And we'll end on a, a note of agreement from the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox who says, uh, unsigned, I don't know why people are on Tanner Pearson. I think he's been one of the better Canucks. At yeah. least he is out there trying. That's going to do it. <laughs> That's going to do it for us today from Rogers Arena. Uh, we will be back tomorrow at 11 to get you set up for the Canucks home game against the Nashville, the Nashville Predators. For myself, Jamie Dodd, for Thomas Drance, thanks for listening. This has been the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.